Welcome to the UNSW Canberra podcast series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's podcast is on the very timely topic of COVID-19, the US-China-India geopolitics, and the re-emergence of the Quad in the Indo-Pacific. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Asia-Pacific Development and Security Research Group based at UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I am Pishamon Yopantong, and it's my great pleasure to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Ashok Sharma, who is a visiting fellow at UNSW Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Dr. Sharma is also an adjunct associate professor at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra, and a visiting fellow at the Australian National University in the Department of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, Corabel School of Asia Pacific Affairs. In today's podcast, Ashok will discuss the impact of COVID-19 on geopolitics as evidenced by the escalation of the simmering strategic rivalry between the United States and China, as well as major flashpoints such as the violent clash between China and India and the re-emergence of the Quad partnership between the United States, India, Japan and Australia. He will also be unravelling the great power game um, in order to better understand um, what it means for these countries to master the Indo-Pacific. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ashok. Um, if I can just start with a very, perhaps deceptively simple question. What's your take on the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on geopolitics in this region? Actually, the world was in denial mode. Pandemics have occurred throughout history, but COVID-19 has emerged as pandemic of the scale, which the world did not witness, with the exception of the Spanish flu almost a century ago. COVID-19 emerges as a black swan event, and it's a severity of combination of viciousness, contagiousness, and deadliness. Its impact has halted the world with severe social, economic, political consequences that the world would have never predicted, imagined. I would like to quote Nassim Taleb, who rightly observes over the years how the world has been fooling itself and stopped thinking beyond its comfort zone. The world limited itself to irrelevant, inconsequential, and stopped thinking beyond our comfort zone. We want to hear what we want and ignore what we don't. And consequently, the world is now facing this disease, and which for which the world was ne never ready for the larger and surprise event with such a devastating effect. The debilitating impact of COVID-19 was one, but for the world, the predictable became unpredictable. The world is in an unprecedented lockdown, unprecedented economic stimulus packages, the death not because of war, but a disease. And the world's most powerful nation, the United States, the most advanced nations of Europe, becoming helpless, were all sudden and unpredictable. The Western developed nations, despite the advanced medical infrastructure and heavy spending on medical research, fell to see what was coming. The world lived in its cocoon and was fooling itself that it was right. The devastating impact of COVID-19 has exposed the world's arrogance, denial mode, and untimely conclusion of being right. The world in the past has seen the severity of viruses and warnings from experts, but ignored. But the pandemics have also exposed the denial mode of the world powers, which are concerned about protecting the international 
liberal order, and especially the United States and its Western allies. Now, there are some key terms that you've just used there. Unpredictability, denial, uh, but also the liberal international order. And particularly when it comes to unpredictability, I suppose this the COVID pandemic has really uh, brought to light how things can change almost within a day. So can I ask you, what do you see as being the major strategic flashpoints that have erupted over the course of COVID-19? I think there are two, uh, two strategic flashpoints. The first is Europe. Uh, the, it, when China contained its disease very well in, uh, in its home, then it started to, you know, uh, try to pursue uh, aid diplomacy, and which was evident in, you know, PPE and, uh, and medical aid uh, that it was giving to countries like Italy and Germany, which were the worst affected countries in the beginning. It was clearly uh, to, to kind of take advantage between... Uh, the U.S. and EU rift, which during Trump administration uh, had emerged because of Trump's you know, transactional policy approach and his demand for burden sharing on security and trade issues. So China sensed an opportunity to create a rift between the U.S. and EU. But the most visible was in the Indo-Pacific, where China's move has been diplomatic and militarily aggressive as well. This is quite visible in security law in Hong Kong, its aggressive behavior in the South China Sea against Vietnam, Japan, and the Philippines, and predatory trade policy by imposing tariffs against Australian products, especially beef and barley. The aggressive military posture became quite visible uh, during China's aggressive move in the Indo-Pacific, especially in the South China, and finally on India-Tibet border, and leading to India-China border clash in which soldiers were killed from both sides. Right, and certainly worrying developments um, and w- ones that may well have a real structural impact or implication uh, for the rest of the world. And amongst those, of course, is the intensification of the US-China strategic rivalry. My question to you is, what factors do you think have contributed to the intensification of the rivalry? And what are its implications, perhaps, looking ahead? Look, COVID-19 happened when the U.S. presidential election campaign started. And, and Trump was, you know, uh, comfortably placed for the second bid for the White House. But the virus began to disrupt his winning probability and his popularity began to go down. But COVID-19 disrupted, finally, his winning probability and he lost the election. But if you see that what, how Trump started to cover up his misgovernance uh, of and his mishandling of COVID outbreak, Trump began to work on the anti-China sentiments that has been only growing in the U.S. and that's bipartisan. It's across both the parties. China, despite uh, and and he started highlighting that despite being warned, ignored the civ- China has ignored the severity of the outbreak. It has stopped the inbound flights and and allowed the outbound flights and begin to distort the fact and spread the misinformation and blame the U.S. for the uh, disease. So China was heavily criticized by the Trump administration and, and, and uh, for undermining the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, embarking of misinformation war, influence of and influencing the World Health Organization. So these things were highlighted by Trump um, during his election campaign. So, so uh, Trump, in a, in a way, tried to resort to China virus, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, this phrase, and which were used by the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and other prominent Republicans as well. 
And though this halt, halted Trump's sliding popularity for a while, but the growing number of cases and deaths due to COVID-9 and misgovernance and poor handling of the COVID-19 uh, outbreak cost him the election. So this was a kind of, a, you know, a point where this US-China latent uh, strategic rivalry began to be intensified. China began to use the humanitarian crisis of COVID-19 to pursue its geopolitical goal and since an opportunity to dislodge the U.S. primacy, especially in the Indo-Pacific, and this only intensified the U.S.-China strategic rivalry and concerns around the rules-based order and strategic stability in the Indo-Pacific. The U.S. Uh, and, and amidst all this, the U.S. started responding as well. And when, when China became aggressive, both diplomatically and militarily, especially in the Indo-Pacific and South China Sea and Indo-Tibet border, the U.S. response was military and diplomatic uh, to China's assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and if you see that despite isolationist rhetoric, Trump continued to focus on global leadership, which could be seen in the continuity of the United States source of security commitments and plans across the globe, especially those ensuring the Indo-Pacific region that remains a shared space, the center of gravity in the connected world. And this is this was mainly due to China's assertive military posture in the Indo-Pacific region, the challenges to the US hegemonic power that has provided stability in the post-World War II period. On the diplomatic front, the US began to raise the issue of Taiwan, began to reach out to allies and partners, openly supported India during the Galwan Valley Indochina uh, troops clash, and military troops were reduced in the European theater, and they were shifted to the Indo-Pacific uh, to support allies and partners uh, uh, who were, you know, being f f uh, who were feeling threatened by the Chinese uh, assertive postures. Then there was another issue which actually triggered the uh, this this uh, this uh, this U.S.-China rivalry was the global supply chain issue. The biggest concern for China was the move by the U.S. and its uh, developed uh, nations, you know, developed nations, uh, industrialized nations, its allies in the Western countries to fix the global supply chain. COVID-19 outbreak has shaken the confidence of the U.S. and the Western world, especially the industrialized nations of G7. This prompted them to fix supply chains to mitigate over-reliance on China, shifting instead to the developing countries with manufacturing capabilities in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. In this context, India, considered to be the only country to match China's manufacturing scale, emerged critical. And, and the move by the US and G7 members to fix global supply chain, that the world obviously has uh, default let China dominate, further intensified the geopolitics at the global level. But China has also responded aggressively by move to diversify supply chains from China, for now, uh, which is now it's visible in vaccine diplomacy, the way it is, you know, giving free uh, vaccines to the countries which are needed. So this was the uh, second uh, tipping point of the this intensification of the um, U.S.-China strategic rivalry um, uh, during COVID-19. Then a refusal to an impartial inquiry. This was another point where President Xi Jinping's refusal to allow an impartial inquiry in the origin of outbreak. Trump's China virus rhetoric was denied and was rejected as a conspiracy theory and was also seen as his last Trump card for his second bid to the White House. Though Biden was silent on the issue during the presidential campaign, uh, campaign now after winning the election, he has uh, taken a U-turn and ordered an inquiry to be submitted within 19 days to ascertain if the disease was due to lab accident. 
Clearly, China is not going to accept the demand for any such inquiry and allow the expert to visit the Wuhan lab. And this will continue to trigger, you know, the 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 uh, this geopolitical uh, rivalry between, uh, between the U.S. and its allies in China. Uh, but China has been exposed as well. It's an it's, it's a authoritarian regime with poor records on human rights violations in the coming years. Uh, whatever China does for its redemption from its internationally damaged image in the post-COVID world, it will not be easy. Because it, if you see that the issue of, you know, uh, it's, it's a kind of democracy versus a communist regime, that issue started erupting that. And that also created a kind of diplomatic level you know, tussle between China and the U.S. And it became a contest between the Washington consensus, a free democratic world versus the Chinese authoritarian system. And this flared up during COVID-19. With the, and, and it was clearly visible when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, while speaking at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, he said, we must change China or China will change us. And he warned on the Chinese Communist Party's influence and propaganda. This was highly symbolic as an Nixon opened diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China in 1972, an achievement long celebrated by the Republican Party. And the speech marked a wholesale revolution of China's place in the world since then. So this Sino-U.S. Shanghai Communique now is being blamed. It gave China a free ride on, on, on the U.S. economy and it, China, China became a kind of a manufacturing hub. So this also uh, erupted as, a, as, a, as an issue of, you know, um, discord between U.S. and China. Right. I, didn't, I mean, you're, you're highlighting a, a raft of pervasive problems here, right, or, or challenges. And one in particular that I think you highlighted well was the, the fact that the current rivalry between the U.S. and China has become increasingly predicated on values-laden terms, which perhaps means that the solution to the rivalry and to these strategic tensions may not be as straightforward. Um, which brings me to this question. With Biden now in, in the presidency, do you see things changing? Do you think Biden will be considerably different to Trump, and certainly there seems to be some signs indicating that, or do you think that it's still too early to tell, perhaps? I think there is not going to be enough, uh, you know, enough uh, change on, on, especially on the Indo-Pacific front. The, the, the strategy may be different. Trump was more blunt in his, uh, his, uh, his containment of China, but uh, Biden is going to be more diplomatic, and he would perhaps would be more inclusive and, and try to engage China on many fronts where U.S. and China can become, you know, friendly. But, but overall, there are certain issues which won't allow him uh, totally different from Trump, especially issues like, you know, uh, this pandemic containment and inquiry into the origin of uh, COVID-19, then this environmental, uh, you know, issues, global climate change and the politics in Indo-Pacific. I will go one by one on this. If you look on the economic front, the global supply chain management and getting rid of the over-reliance on China is going to be a nagging issue between the hegemon and the challenger China. This is going to continue and it has already started. And over the years, uh, U.S. Western developed countries, the uh, countries with a high uh, you know, capital, they will try to look for the countries which can match China's scale in different, different sectors. Obviously, India is one of the biggest countries that has emerged 
in that scenario. Vietnam is there. The many Southeast Asian tigers are there. The Latin American countries are there. Some African countries are there. So, and some South Asian countries are also there. So, so this is going to be an issue which will continue to be a nagging issue and which China would definitely not like to, uh, to, um, to happen. On the environment front, Biden's administration has been quite upfront about the steps it is taking to combat global warming. First step he took was rejoining Paris Climate Agreement. Very welcome step. And on the day one in the office, to con he, convened the global, he decided to convene the Global Climate Summit. And it is clear with this that Biden is serious about addressing global warming. But the leadership on bringing the global mercury level down will not be easy. And the U.S. will have to lead by example. U.S. carbon emission is just under 15%. But per capita emission is very, very high, even higher than China and India and all these you know, fastest growing emitters. Uh, uh, of uh, CO2. So so what is the best solution for controlling the global climate change and this global warming, bringing mercury level down? Experts consider that shifting to renewable energy, increasing the percentage of renewable energy is going to be the key uh, in tackling the global warming. This has been a focus of uh, Biden administration. From the executive order to the Quad Summit and the Global Climate Summit, renewable energy has become a top priority for the Biden, Biden administration. But his most difficult task will be persuading the world's major economies and the powers and the fastest growing emitters to reduce their reliance on their fossil fuels, coal, hydrocarbon sources and petroleum and increase the share of renewable energy in the overall energy mix. However, the transition to renewable energy is fraught with geopolitical complications, strategic rivalries as countries, particularly China, seek to dominate this space as some of the rare earth materials required for solar panels and wind turbines are already dominated by China. In 1990s, it was America which used to dominate this space. But over the last 20 years, China has done excellent job in that. And, and it is now in a position where it can dominate renewable energy marketing and its technology and its, its resources also there. But how Biden shifts this how, how Biden tackles this. This is going to be challenged. And for this, the U.S. will have, and especially Biden, the Biden administration will have to look to countries like Australia, India, Indonesia, and the many other countries in, in the world which, where these rare earth materials are there. So how to exploit those resources and get rid of overlands uh, from China, but it will involve money, marketing, technology, and uh, this is going to be a contested region contested space uh, uh, where U.S.-China will again, uh, you know, will have a bit of discord in their relationship. On the foreign policy front, Biden has remained vigilant and responsive to the current Indo-Pacific strategic challenges. That's not going to be any change. In fact, Biden has been, I would say, more strategic, uh, it has been more tactical and, and it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, this result is going to be uh, very, very, you know, very productive when it comes to the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, and that is quite visible in, in elevating the Quad meetings to the summit level meeting. And it was at the foreign minister secretary level meeting. And it was the first time he convened a Quad summit. And, and, and then he has been also, uh, you know, his administration uh, uh, has been 
meeting all the partners and allies, a foreign minister, a foreign and defense ministries level bilateral, virtual and in-person talks, the meetings with Indo-Pacific nations such as India, Japan, Australia, South Korea and Taiwan on the issues ranging from pandemic containment to security are very much noticeable. So he has given much focus to the Indo-Pacific strategic undercurrents and he understands that this is the reason where if U.S. is hosted, dislodged, the U.S. will lose its preeminence in the world. Right, and on that note, I mean, you mentioned the Quad just now, and that's something that we will have to come back um, shortly after this. Aside from kind of this, the grim prediction that some people have of the U.S.'s declining hegemony, but also the almost inevitable emergence of a multipolar world, and you used the term earlier, contested region, um, and you also mentioned, of course, important players like India, Indonesia, and of course, Australia. My question to you is, and I feel like this is the perhaps elephant in the room, what is India's role in all of this? Um, what's your take on India's strategic posturing in the wake of US-China strategic rivalry, um, in light of the deadly border clash with China, but also in light of the continued uncertainty that we see arise from the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic? I know it's a very big question, but it would be great if we can get your thoughts on this, given that Indian foreign policy, of course, is your direct area of expertise. I would try to be short straight away amidst two prominent issues which emerged during the COVID-19 geopolitics. One was fixing global supply chain and another was the Indo-Pacific security and stability. How to ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific. In both contexts, India has emerged a very powerful you know, player in, uh, in the context. One is that uh, India is the only country to match the manufacturing scale of China. And it has been already there. And, you know, there is one sector which is already there is uh, uh, India's uh, pharmaceutical industry, which is growing and growing. And it became the biggest producer of vaccine in the world. And it's uh, generic medicine became very important. SCQL uh, during, you know, the, in the initial days, it was considered as a, a remedy for the COVID-19 uh, 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 disease. And India emerged as the biggest supplier of that SCQL. And uh, this, uh, uh, obviously, India emerged and then vaccine producer and India has emerged as the biggest producer of vaccine. After containing the first wave reasonably well, despite its patchy health system and, you know, it's, a, it's still a developing country, not very well advanced medical infrastructure, it reasonably did well. Its death rate was very low, and and uh, and and it it contained very well. But the second wave has decimated India, and 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 it brings question on how India will emerge after this. Uh, just before you know, second wave, the first quarter, India was projected to be the again uh, growing in two digit. So it will come back. It's going to be one of the manufacturing hub in the world. Modi government's Make in India initiative has already uh, attracted a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of capitals and, and already after this pandemic outbreak and the need to fix global supply chain, many countries have registered their interest in India. 
First is obviously vaccine, but there are many other areas where defense sector is there. Defense sector, China is uh, Western countries are not going to uh, align with uh, with uh, China on that. India is already becoming a big defense uh, manufacturer, and it is it is and 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 there is a collaboration between you know U.S. Israel. Uh, uh, France. These are the countries which were, uh, uh, which during the Cold War period, they were not aligned very well with India. But after the end of the Cold War, Russia's overall percentage of, you know, uh, uh, percentage of exports to Indian market has decreased. So India wants to be also manufacturer of this uh, defense, uh, uh, defense products because it has to create jobs. And this is the sector where it has the potential to create as many as jobs. If you look at India's economic growth in the last 30 years, you'll find that there has been, you know, uh, economic growth, but the jobs were not created because it was the IT and service sector. So they need to make a manufacturing hub. And some of the leading sectors would be, one is definitely defense sector and the vaccine. This pharmaceutical industry is already big in India. They are the biggest producer of generic medicine. American and uh, British pharmaceutical firms have already invested over the last four decades and India's democracy, India's, you know, better of an international legal system are more aligned with this. You can challenge the laws. This provides these manufacturers to invest in India. But, and and they, are more, they, will, uh, they feel more secure in India in case of litigation than in China. So these are some, some of the advantages and India's high-tech, you know, uh, high-tech population and, and English is speaking uh, and it's a very young demography. So these are obviously going to be, uh, you know, um, going to be the beneficial, going to be beneficial for India in this emerging uh, need of fixing global supply chain. The second is strategic posturing and the strategic, you know, balancing between uh, uh, between the U.S. and and China rivalry. How India is India is one of the biggest defense powers in in the Indo-Pacific region. Its navy is 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 expanding and expanding. It has focused. It's a nuclear power. It has a nuclear submarine. So it is expanding and is uh, and 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 on India-China border front also, it is it is now now making its infrastructure development is becoming big and it is it continues to you know develop its military infrastructure and all that and it's one of the biggest importer of arms. Very high-tech weapons. Its aircraft and all that uh, fighter aircrafts are considered to be better than China because it is from the high-end, you know, uh, uh, American and French and Russian uh, uh, top companies are providing to India, including Rafale and all these Lockheed Martin and Boeing and MiG. So, so these are the things which will play an important role in India's defense capability. And India has also uh, reached out to the Southeast Asian countries, uh, which started in 1990s with the, you know, uh, Lukist policy now being aggressively pursued under Modi government, uh, through activist policy, and it has engaged countries like Vietnam as becoming a very powerful country in terms of, you know, uh, balancing Chinese military aggression in that country. And India and Vietnam are exploring energy, uh, petroleum and all that in the South China Sea as well. And also they are doing military drills. And India is now doing military drills with uh, countries like uh, Australia. And so this is becoming an important uh, player. So India is strategically and economically both has emerged uh, 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 a very you know very significant player in the entire COVID nineteen geopolitics. I will not go deep into this because we will come to other topic if you would like to. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I mean, it's the image that you've painted is certainly one of India rising as a power to be reckoned with within this region, if not globally. Um, putting aside for now, of course, the devastating consequences that pa the pandemic has had on India. Um, 
it's no wonder then that Australia, the United States, Japan are really looking to India to act as a, a cornerstone of the whole Indo-Pacific strategy, but certainly of the Quad as well. Um, I can't help but ask you this final question um, pertaining to the Quad, which is, do you see it as viable? I mean, there's plenty of debate, plenty of discussion in Australia at the moment as to whether or not the Quad actually has a future. But I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, especially what the perspective might be from India in particular. Quad was rested after, you know, it went to backstays when it first emerged in 2007. Chinese Demarche, you know, China protested that you are making an anti-China coalition and, 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 and all four countries are ganging up against China. At that time, all these countries had dependency on China. They, had a, they were pursuing economic relationship, uh, good economic ties of Australia, uh, China, US China, India China, Japan China, they all had. At that time, China was not also, China did not arrive fully. Its defense budget was increasing, but its aggressive posture was not, you know, visible. It was more of a panda than dragon. And, 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 but over the period, its activities in the South China Sea, building of artificial islands and aggressive postures, and then continued aggression on Indochina border and South China and flexing its muscles, the squad started emerging. This Indo-Pacific strategy also, the terms started being used. And, 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 and you see that from a grand strategy of Bush administration to Obama's pivot to Asia-Pacific, and then to Trump administration's free and open Indo-Pacific, and now Biden continuing the Indo-Pacific strategy. So Quad is an important strategy, Indo-Pacific strategy, to, to address the security and stability concerns in the Indo-Pacific. It is the most powerful. It is definitely, militarily, is the powerful bulwark against military move by China. China cannot fight these countries if they come together. It's definitely not going to be. So militarily, they have contained and it is now elevated from foreign secretary to head of the state level, head of the government level, president, prime ministers, they all attended. And above all, it is now militarily. They, all the four countries joined the defense exercises. So on security front is there, but can Quad extend horizontally and vertically? I mean to say that can Quad extend it too some of the non-traditional issues which are becoming the contested space for the great power politics and which is important. One is the global supply chain, renewable energy, how you support the countries which are facing problem uh, economically and, and, and providing vaccines, health point of views. So uh, energy security. So can Quad extend it to this? Just military alliance, that's fine. That's, and China is not looking for war. China's strategy is always that without fighting war, it wants to be a superpower. So it's basically economic front where China has to be countered. So can Quad become a viable option to Belt Road Initiative? That's the biggest challenge Quad will have. Then another is that can Quad include more nations like South Korea, Vietnam, New Zealand, Thailand, Indonesia, many other countries, Philippines. So all these countries, can they come together? Can they be accommodated? So how Quad expands to include more nations, more like-minded democratic nations, and how Quad becomes you know, uh, more comprehensive 
in terms of the issues that it's going to address. You know, it was questioned on that their relationship has been with China has been very good. But during COVID-19, this has been exposed. China's relationship with all these coordinations have gone down. And, and Chinese geopolitical intent is clear now. So Quad is going to survive. It will become relevant. But its biggest challenge is that can it extend to the other issues, including economic and other non-traditional security issues, and can counter Chinese move in the region. I certainly appreciate your optimism when it comes to the Quad and perhaps when it comes to the future as well on that note. Unfortunately, uh, that is all the time that we have for uh, for this podcast, but I really want to thank you again, Ashok, for spending the time with us to share with us the fascinating insights um, that you have. And also to thank our listeners for tuning in to this podcast today. Please do join us for our upcoming episode um, of Navigating Uncertainty. And until then, I hope all of you will thank stay you. safe. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.